Well, good evening. Are we ready? Let's jump in tonight. How's it going? Everybody good? Good to see you. Thanks for coming this evening. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3 tonight. Ephesians 3. I love this passage of Scripture, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. This is Paul's prayer, and it's, man, it's such a, it's so thick. It's so full of of great insight and and you know sometimes we read scripture and it's like Chad and I were talking about a passage we're going to be preaching a week from Sunday that is kind of a narrative just a story of and 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 so we're looking into the story uh, and and there's some passages that are like 25 verses full of of just kind of a story where we're looking at the trying to discern what theology is being taught what doctrines being taught and it's really just kind of a story. And, um, but there are some passages, like Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, where it's like just trying to organize these, these words and what God's word is saying. But Paul starts out, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches... He may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Then he says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love, you may have power with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And it's just such a cool verse, such a cool section, because he points to the fact of, of, you know, for this reason, I'm kneeling before the Father, his whole family in heaven and on earth. This, we, we are a part of a really big story. We are a part of the movement of God through the history of the world. And it's an amazing reality that we get to be a part of God's story on the earth. And... And, and, and like what we're going to do tonight, to do our best to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then I love what Paul says, to know this love, it surpasses knowledge. I mean, truly, there are times we will approach the Word of God and study the Word of God, and you're like, wow, God, this is so big for me. It's hard for me to wrap my head around how big you are, but yet, at the same time, God is known to us. We can know him. We know who he is. We know what he's like. He has revealed himself to us in specific ways. You know, it was interesting, uh, on Friday, um, uh, uh, Joan and Joan Mays and John were, were tag-teaming on this young lady that is 
that came to know Christ on Friday. And, uh, and, and we were talking to her about, I was talking to her on Friday about how, you know, how God has spoken to her. She's like, I think God's speaking to me. And, and it was just really cool to, to kind of unpack this idea that, that, that God has revealed himself to mankind. Like, like we, wouldn't, we wouldn't know specific things about God unless he revealed them to us. And so I want, I want us to understand, and this is the incredible truth, that there, though God is so big and so massive that it's difficult for the finite to grasp the eternal, that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. We can know who he is. We can know what he's like. And, and, and that's such an incredible truth and reality. And, and, and tonight we're going to be wrestling with part of God that it does surpass our knowledge. It is going to push us a little bit. This is a night of mental sweat. And this whole class has been some, some mental sweat for us. But isn't it, hasn't it been good? I mean, haven't you been glad to, to, to come and wrestle with, with these truths? And, and, and so I just kind of want to remind us a little bit of, of this, this call to be theologians. Because you're a theologian, Right? Uh, we're all theologians. The, the, the question is not going to be whether we're theologians. The question is going to be, are we good theologians? Are we, are we right in our theology? And that's what's critically important. So I, we, we looked last week at how we construct our, our theological beliefs. We construct our theological beliefs by unifying the biblical teaching about God. The Bible matters, right? That's our, that we've got to understand what the Scripture says. And now the scripture is not a, uh, a list of, okay, it's this doctrine and this doctrine. We see the doctrine in the poetry, in the story, in the narrative. We, we see it as the wisdom is unfolded in scripture. But, but we've got to know the Bible. And this is why I pray that, that we are a people that know God's word. That, that, that you are you're pushing yourself to understand the word of God. We construct theological beliefs by unifying the biblical teaching about God, ourselves and the world in the context God has called us to be his disciples. So we've got to understand the Bible, understand ourselves, understand the world. Now, um, good theology always starts with scripture. So I want you to see that. I think that's important to understand. Like we've said before, good theology learns from church history. That, that we didn't start in 2019. We didn't jump from Paul to 2019. There's a lot of history and a lot of church history that's taken place. And so it's important to understand that history, that church history. So when, when we look at these, these movements of God throughout history, we should pay attention to those. Many times in Baptist life, we kind of push those aside. That, that we don't need to wrestle with what the creeds that were developed in the church uh, why did they do those creeds? Why did they put together those doctrines, those truths? And we need to understand that. We need to wrestle and familiarize ourselves with, with church history because good theology learns from that. Good theology also provides answers for people today because here we are in 2019 living in this world. And, and there are many people around us that don't know God, don't understand the things of God, and we're called to, to them 
to, to help a world understand God. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ. And it's my prayer that at this church, we are, we are confident in this call to be ambassadors. We can represent Christ well to a world that doesn't recognize him or know him. And so it's important for us to, to, to recognize how theology comes together. Good theology, and I want you to see this, number two there, good theology is more than intellectual. It always affects life. And I, this is something I pray you, you catch, that, that even though we're wrestling with difficult concepts, don't think that theology is just mental sweat or affecting your mind. That, that if you're going to study theology right, it's going to affect your life. And this is so important because I've, I've been in settings where people were, um, were studying theology incorrectly. And it was producing in them an arrogance, a, a lack of love, a, a, uh, a, a situation where they would look at somebody and go, man, you're such a fool. You're such an idiot. And I've been in those moments. And, and honestly, I've, I've done that to others. And it's dawned on me, okay, when I get into a situation of studying theology and I am more arrogant I'm not studying theology correctly. If I am, if I am moved to a, a position of puffing up versus humility, when you study theology correctly, you're going to grow in humility. It's going to cause you to go, wow, God, you're really big. You're, you're big. And, and it's going to give you this awe of him. It's going to give you this, this devotion to him. And, and this is why uh, we've got to be careful as we study theology, that we do it correctly and not move to that position of pride and arrogance, but genuine humility and awe of God and devotion to the Lord. And, and this is another thing. When you study theology correctly, you're going to apply your, your truth to your experience. I said the other day about testimony. We, when um, Paul shared his testimony and the power of a testimony is, is in, essentially irrefutable. But, but I'll tell you, remember when I referenced folk theology? Remember that folk theology? That's that, oh, that belief about God that really is not backed up by truth. And we got to make sure that the beliefs that we hold are actually backed up by truth. This is why a study of theology, a systematic approach to understanding the Word of God, pulling out the doctrines of Scripture is very important. Because we've got to make sure that, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people that said I, they believe in a certain way because they've had these experiences. Now, it's important that when we have experiences, we back them up with, well, does it gel with truth? And, and this is important. Good theology applies truth to your experience. Proper theology, and this is another test, it produces wisdom. And this is my prayer, that we are, that we are grow, as a church, that we are growing in wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? It's not just knowledge. Now, wisdom involves knowledge, right? Someone that is wise, they have knowledge. But wisdom is not just knowledge, it's the correct use of knowledge. And, and that's what, what I pray that happens through these classes and, I, and this, this journey. And as we, as we engage in study like this, as, as, as we push you to 
to, to really buy, you ought, to, you ought to get a systematic theology book, you know. You ought to, you ought to get one of those in, in your library, your personal study. You ought to have a Bible dictionary. You ought to have some good commentaries as you look at Scripture. Um, and these are just the, the calling as a, as, a, as a faithful Christ follower, one that's going to grow in your walk with God. But, but it's important that you understand that theology is not just producing wisdom or it's not just intellectual. It should impact your life. And so this is something I pray and I've been praying for us as a church. Every theologian, third thing, every theologian, the challenge is to be a good one. And that's what I pray happens here. And here's, here's I put these three bullets in here. Be more interested in knowing God rather than just knowing about him. Does that make sense? That, that, that we're in a relationship with God. And we're not called just to know about him. We're called to know him. And, and, you know, as I come to know God, I'll tell you what, um, I'm often convicted of, of motives and thoughts. I'm often moved to be gracious or not smart aleck or um, forgiving, you know, because the more I come to understand the Savior who purchased me, the more I'm moved to act like him. And so let's make sure that we don't miss that subtle point, that as we study the, the truths about God, we're not just knowing about him, we're coming to know him, to experience him. And, and, and can I challenge you with this? Um, if we're going to be good theologians, don't be satisfied with your current understanding of our Savior. I, I want to challenge you to not be satisfied with where you are right now. And um, just like when, when my, our kids were little, we, like many of you, how many of you put a little mark on your, on your uh, whether it's a door or a door frame to see how, how your kids grew over the year? Anybody do that? Okay. So, you know, that's kind of fun. And then so one day I looked up and my son was taller than me, and I don't know when that happened. It just kind of happened. And I reminded him, I can still whip you, so don't, don't forget that. And I, I threw him on the ground, and just to remind him. And, um, but, but you know what? We ought to be able to look back at our spiritual growth. And I hope that every year you do, an, we do an evaluation of, okay, am I growing spiritually? Is am I am I satisfied with my current understanding of our Savior? Can I tell you, um, uh, when I became a pastor, I had a very convicting moment. Because, and, and uh, I had this thought, and I quickly repented of it. As I was preparing for Easter and Christmas, and, and those are interesting things as a pastor to, to prepare for. Because when it's Christmas time and Easter time, um, those are kind of the same stories, right? I mean, I mean, if I get up and preach a message at Christmas and it's so creative that you're like, Huh, he didn't mention that Jesus came to the earth. That might be a big deal. A big, uh, it's the same story. And I can remember thinking, Lord, how am I going to tell this story over and over again? And then it's, I stopped. And God reminded me, Chris, this story, these stories, the resurrection, the death and resurrection and the birth of Christ are so magnificent 
that you'll, you, you could spend a lifetime and never exhaust the magnificence of those two events. So now I'm looking at it differently. I'm like, cool. You know, if I get to, if I get to do this for the next 25 years, man, I get to figure out 25 more entire series on the resurrection of Christ and the birth of Christ. Cool. And, and, and then now I'm kind of like, is that it? I, I had a guy, uh, I went to his ordination, and uh, Bear McAfee, and I went back to Council Road to be at his ordination, and he asked me, Chris, um, what do I do when I run out of stuff to preach as a pastor? And I put my arm around him, and I said, hey, let me tell you a moment God rebuked me, and I told him that story about that I actually had the thought that I repented of, Lord, sorry, I'll never exhaust the vastness of your word. And I said, hey, man, I promise you'll never run out, ever. And then he's called me back just a few weeks into after being ordained. He goes, I think you're right. I don't think I'll ever run out of stuff to preach. And, and I, so my prayer is that you're not satisfied with your current understanding of God and his word. Lastly, right there, it's in, I wrote it out. Be willing to stretch yourself. And grow in heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know what? Um, we ought to push one another, right? I mean, I mean, um, if we as your pastors don't push you, and if you don't push us, man, we're, I don't think we're taking advantage of the life God has given us. I don't think we're making the most of the life and the ministry that God has given us. Hey, let's just, let's just commit for the rest of our lives. Let's, let's push each other to grow in our understanding of God, who he is, what he's like. And, um, and let's pray together as we jump into the mercy of God. Lord Jesus, <clears throat> truly, you are the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And Father, we, we admit our desperate need of you to be like you, to, to know you. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and give us a hunger for your word, a hunger for your truth. Lord, you would give us a, a love for you like like you said, to love you with our heart, our minds, our soul, and our strength, that we would passionately love you. But then right after that, you said, also we should love our neighbors as ourselves. So Lord, would you help us learn how to love you and grow in that love for you and to grow in our love for one another. Lord, thank you for this night that we get to wrestle through the magnificence of your mercy. Would you speak to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. On Monday, Chris and I went to an evangelism conference, and uh, it, was, it was fun, but we had a lot of good conversations. But when we got back here, we sat in his truck for about 30 minutes talking, and uh, part of what we were talking about was the beauty of we are young right now, relatively speaking, we are young. 
And what if we continue to passionately pursue God and to grow in his knowledge? And I said, just think, think what, will, what will happen like when I'm 80? And he goes, when you're 80, I'm dead. <laughs> but there's, there's, there's some beauty to that. And, and I think we have to have that in our minds. Uh, I, think, I think, Chris, for, for helping us think through that and to push through that, that never be satisfied with our current knowledge, that there's always more to learn about the Lord. He is infinite and he is great. Um, tonight is going to be a fun night. I am sad a little bit that this is our last night. These years just click off so quickly. Um, this will be our last evening today, together in this study. And we're going to take a look at the, um, the idea of God's mercy. And so if you will, turn in your scripture to First Peter and we will we'll take a look at First Peter before we jump in. Uh, we're we're going to look at First Peter one, verse three. And this will really be a theme verse for us tonight, and we'll come back to it. But I want to set the stage with it, and then unpack some ideas, and then we'll come back with this. We'll finish with this, but this really does set the mood for the evening. He says this, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But I love how he starts there. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to what? To his great mercy. He has what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope. And so we're going to unpack this idea uh, this evening of what it means to be born again and what it means to benefit from the mercy of God. But as we get started, I want you to have your mind uh, primed with the God of the gospel. What is the gospel? If someone's to ask you, what is the gospel? Um, what would you say? Uh, what, what would you say as an explanation of what the gospel is? Um, because we have to start there. When we start talking about the mercy of God in our job as Christians, is, is well, let me open the floor. What do you think our job is? Any, anyone can jump out. Glorify God. That's good. What else are we called to? Make disciples. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Okay, yeah, absolutely. He says every born-again believer has a ministry of reconciliation. And, and the, the beautiful idea is when we take those, that we glorify God, and I think those are all good truths. We glorify God, we make disciples, and we carry out ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. Those are, those are good things. And we think about the gospel, um, that's part of our job, right? Our job is to be messengers, to go preach this message. But when we say what, what is the gospel, now I know we've got... Plenty, we, we've got plenty of, I would say, quote-unquote, canned responses to what the gospel is, and I have nothing against those. So, sometimes those are helpful. Sometimes those are what we kind of need to wrap our heads around. But shooting from the hip, or using a canned one, I don't care, what would you say is the gospel? And Rick and I have talked about this before. Maybe if we asked this question, we would get different answers, and we might. But this is part of growing, part of wrestling through these ideas. Does anyone have the courage to throw out their definition of the gospel? Yeah. Excellent. God's own son providing eternal life. Rick? Yeah. Good. 
Awesome. That's good. So let, let, me, let me push that idea a little further. I love it. Um, let me start with this premise. Actually, a question, and then we'll, we'll state it. Is the gospel inside of us or outside of us? Outside of us first. All right, so here's, um, let's just say us. And the gospel... The gospel is outside of us to begin with, right? It's, it's something that does get into us, but it, it is something that's outside of us first. And why, would I, why in the world would we even start there? Why would we even start saying something like that? Well, we'll unpack that in just a second. But the first thing we have to look at is the gospel is not some force. It's not some magical, mystical something. All right? The gospel literally is the work of Christ, we can reduce that to Jesus Christ coming, living the perfect life, dying in our place, and rising from the dead. Now, that's that's the, the carrying out the plan of redemption. Now, the gospel can be bigger than that, and it is bigger than that. We're going to look at that. But when we say the gospel is something that's outside of us, we have to start here because we ask the qu- hypothetical question, what if Jesus did not come and die in our place? Do you have the gospel? No. There's nothing in you. There, there, there is, there's no substance. There's nothing to hold on to. Without the physical, literal, bodily death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no gospel. So the gospel is something that's outside of us first because it's the work of Christ, but then that gets into us when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and all that good stuff, which we're going to unpack tonight. But I want to take you on a quick journey. So we say the work of Christ is life, death, and resurrection is a central truth of the gospel. And but I want to trace this gospel through the Old and New Testament. All right. So the first idea, and it's on your printout as well. There is a need for redemption for man has fallen, bound by sin, and under the just wrath of God. God desires to redeem His fallen creation. God secures the redemption of His creation. All right. And we could argue about what that looks like, but I think we all can at least agree from a high level that God actually does secure redemption. For those who believe, he secures redemption for them. Okay, Then the next idea is that God the Father calls a particular people through which he will save the world by providing a true Messiah. Do you agree with that? Who is that? Israel, right? Yes. He called these people out and said, I've got a special purpose for you, and through you I'm going to bring the Messiah who is Jesus Christ. We see that in the Old Testament. Then God the Son takes on a human nature and lives the perfect life we could not. Right? So this was Christ's act of obedience. Well, what did he do? If you stopped there, if you stopped there, do you have the gospel? You don't have the gospel yet, do you? Okay? Because that's good to, to do that. He needs to do that, but that hasn't gained us much yet. Right? Because we still have this penalty. We still owe this great debt. So he has to move to this next step, which is God the Son dies on the cross to atone for sin, which is what we call the passive obedience. Of Christ. All right, now, do we have the gospel yet? What happens if he stays dead? <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, we've got these things, these are good, these are good, but we can't stop. The gospel is more than just the cross, the mo- it's more than just that, right? So God raises Christ from the dead, which is an essential element of the gospel. Okay, so then what happens? Christ sends the Holy Spirit and commissions the church, all right, in the ascension. We see that in the New Testament. We see this idea. Now, 
I believe that that is a very good snapshot of the gospel, but I'm going to show you a couple more, which is it's not a surprise, it's already on your handout. But there's a couple more things that I think are also part of the quote-unquote gospel. What is that? The idea that Christ is currently reigning, all right? He is at the right hand of the Father. That's good news, okay? He didn't just, just go away and forget about us. He, he, he is with us. He is reigning. He's in power. That's good news, okay? Well, what else? He's coming back. That's also, if, if you will allow me to argue, a big picture idea of the gospel. So when we think of the gospel, the gospel is something that's in us. I'm not going to take that away from us. Or, not that I could, but I'm not going to argue against that. But the gospel is bigger than just something that gets inside of us. There's a beauty in this big narrative of what God is doing to truly bring about the redemption of mankind according to his great mercy. And it is comforting to think about this because Christ is coming back. Who's he coming back for? Yeah, his bride. This is good. This is good. And also, it doesn't end there, right? Creation will be redeemed. Death will be destroyed completely. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. We're not sure what all of that exactly looks like, but it's good. The gospel continues. It continues beyond us. We are saved. We are saved from our sins, but all of creation has a gospel narrative to it, doesn't it? That there's a redeeming element to the work of Christ uh, and conquering death and coming back. Um, so these, I would argue, would be some of the highlights when we start to talk about what is the gospel. So when we talk about what the gospel is, and we want to communicate the mercy of God, I believe all of these are very good stamps, if you will, to go back and highlight. This is the way in which God has shown mercy to us. And so when you're sharing your faith, and you're wondering, where in the world do I even start? Sometimes we see Paul doing that. He goes back. Remember in, uh, in, in Athens? And they like, oh, I see you got an altar to the unknown God. Let me tell you a little bit. There is one who is the true creator. He created everything. He goes back, and he has a good place to start. But we, in, in sharing our faith, could go through these lines. And I'm, I'm cool. Do the Romans road. Do any, anything, can thing you want. But don't forget that the gospel narrative is big. It's beautiful that God is in control and he's actively bringing about the redemption of you and me, for those who believe, as well as for creation. Yes, Jim. Yeah, and so I summarized that with him taking on human nature, but we could, as you and I stayed for 45 minutes that one night and diagrammed out all of that stuff, I would agree with that. That's part of it, too. I have no problem with that. Absolutely. So as we get into this, we're going to tackle a couple of ideas here. Um, one of them we're going to look at is the gospel obedience. Then we're going to take a look at the Redeemer. And then we're going to take a look at grace alone. But I think it's important for us to stop and think just for a few minutes. When we are sharing our faith, when we are wrapping our minds around this God of mercy, the God of the gospel, well, how do we how do we benefit from that? There's something that we have to do. And now I say that um, very, I don't know if you can say with, with caution, because I don't ever want you to think that there's something that we do to save ourselves. That is not what I'm communicating. But there is a part in which we move to benefit. And I want to unpack that. And I'm, I'm, this is conjecture, but I think what we're going to explore here a little bit may be something you haven't really thought through yet. 
Um, and that's okay. We want to wrestle through these. And, and even in, in my study and preparing for this, there were some ideas that I thought, you know what, I really need to flesh this out. Especially if you're going to stand up here and talk about it, you need to flesh it out, right? We can't do that here. So I want to present a couple of ideas. I want to take you on a little journey and talk about gospel obedience. Um, when you start to share the gospel and we talk about the mercy of God, what is it that we would really say is the central theme? If you say, in order to be saved, you must have what? Faith. Very good. Okay, so faith. We agree. Is there anything, you should already detect by my tone, is there anything before faith? Yes. There's a few things, and, 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 and bear with me. I'm going to put some things up there, and you're going to be like, hmm, wait a second, and that's okay. I invite that. I believe that repentance comes before faith, and you're going to say, you're going to have to explain that, and I will. Because if you stop there, and I left right here, I think I would have done a big disservice to you. So, Lord, please let me live for at least the next 30 minutes, okay? Because I do not want you to have in your mind that before you can come to faith that you've got to turn from all of your sins and stop sinning and blah, 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 blah. That's not what I'm saying. So just before I lose you right now, let me unpack this. But I believe repentance comes before faith and before repentance is regeneration and before regeneration is conviction, okay? And then after all of that is baptism. Baptism does not save you. We will talk about that in a second. But I do think it's part of that normative conversion experience. It, all throughout the New Testament, we see this idea, okay? So let's talk about faith. When we say faith, you must have faith. It's impossible to please God without it. All these good things, right? We are saved by it. Um, can anyone give me a quick definition of faith? When we tell someone to have, quote, unquote, faith, what are we calling them to? What are we actually telling them to do? Trust, very good, okay. So most of us would agree that a New Testament use of the word faith is more in line with a trusting into. Okay, it's trusting into, and we're going to get to into what. But it's not this big idea that I have faith against the evidence, which is a common misconception in our lives today, in our modern use of the word faith. So I'll have my data, you have your faith. Right? That's, that's the, I, ha I have my facts, you have your faith. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about believing against the odds. We're not talking about just shooting out there and hoping it sticks. We are talking about a relational trusting into, okay? But I think there's some things to unpack with faith. Uh, so when we start to actually talk about faith, um, we, we need to look at this idea here. So faith is trusting uh, a person and his work. So when we say faith, We've got to have an object of our faith, right? So when we say the gospel is something that's outside of us, well, part of the gospel, we would say, is the work of Christ. He is the object of our faith. So when we're looking this way and we say this is faith, our faith is in a person and in a work. We are not putting faith in faith. We're not trusting in trust. We are trusting in a person and in a work. Well, in order to do that, I believe you have to have three things. One of them is knowledge, the next one is assent, and then the third one is trust. If we go to trust without knowledge and assent, we're in trouble. Now, you may say, Rob, why do you, why do you even argue that you would need to have those two things before the third? Well, let's think about it. What is one of the things that we argue as in, in what we say in the fundamentalist, uh, and I mean that in a, in a positive way, where we have our doctrines that define us as orthodox Christians, 
we would say that there's certain things you have to believe about Jesus. Isn't that correct? Everyone wants a piece of Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses want a piece. The Mormons want a piece. Islam, there's everyone wants a piece of Jesus. So when we say faith in Jesus, we've got to clarify a couple of things. So what we have to have is we have to have a little bit of knowledge, don't we? We have to know who we are talking about. Who is Jesus? So when we are sharing the gospel message, we can't just stop at any old Jesus, let them have this idea of any old Jesus will do. Jesus may be uh, this spirit thing that never really actually had a body, and I trust in him. That we, we would argue against that, but there are some people who believe that that's the type of Jesus we're talking about, is he was just a good guru, or you go the, the Mormon or, or Jehovah Witness route, and you start talking about these other things. Now, I would love to entertain the debate and idea of can a Mormon be saved? That's some interesting stuff to talk through. Can a Mormon be saved if they're only given minimal facts? Whew, not going to unpack it tonight, but it's worth wrestling through. But what we have to have is you have to have some knowledge. Okay, theoretically, let me push this. If you have no knowledge of Christ, can you trust in him? Zero knowledge of Jesus, can you trust in him? No. There has to be some knowledge. Now, we could debate how much, and there, there's theories of what are the minimal requirements. We're not going to talk about that tonight, but you have to have some knowledge. Then you move to assent. Do you agree with these facts? Because if you have the knowledge but you disagree with them, can you trust? No. That you simply hold them as these abstractions, but not necessarily something that you, you agree with or are willing to even fall in or submit to. So we have to have knowledge. We have to know something about Jesus. But not just that. We have to agree with them, assent to the facts. But if we stop there, do we have true saving faith? I know about him, and it could be true. But I have to move to that third one, which is trust. And I wish we had more on time to unpack this. But the first idea that we have to have, though, is when we talk about faith, we're not just saying blind faith, shooting it out there, hoping for the best. We are, we are trusting in a person, which means we know some facts about a person, and if, just throw out some minimal facts. Jesus is God. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He rose from the dead. And anyone who believes in him will be saved. There's some minimal facts. Can we debate those? Yes, but those are some minimal facts. When I say I have faith, I'm going to argue you've got to have at least those, those things. But we have to move on. So these scriptures right here, Ephesians 2, 8, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, Romans several times in several different places says we are justified by faith, but here's one, uh, Romans 3.28, one is justified by faith apart from works. And this was a big deal in the Reformation. Remember what they said in the Reformation? Sola fide, faith alone. The Catholic Church was like, whoa, no, no, no. There's all these other things you've got to do. And Luther says, that's not what I see in the Scripture. You are saved by faith alone. Saved by grace through faith alone. So the, so the reformers held to this idea that we are saved by faith, but then they would expound on faith, and we can talk about faith, but first we have to have at least a basic understanding of it. But here's what we believe as Baptists, okay? And as I've confessed many times, I am trying to learn how to be a Baptist, and uh, here we are. This is where we are today. And, 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 and I... Oh, this is... Forgive me. When I look at the Baptist faith and message, it's a good start. I don't know a better way to say this. 
but there's some better confessions out there that are more precise, but this one is still good, if I can just say that much. Um, there are other bigger, more specific confessions. When you get to the Baptist faith and message from 2000, it's very thin, and it kind of says, here's the minimal highlights. It doesn't really get into some of the details, and that's okay. But here's the thing. If we're going to be Baptists, we have to agree on some things. They do a good job highlighting the essentials. And when you're thumbing through, you may say, man, I wish they went into a little more detail because literally they'll give like three sentences on a big major doctrine and you're hungry for more. But here's a good one. I love this. They, they, they give this idea of what is salvation. And I agree with this. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And this is from Article 4 of the Baptist Faith and Message. So do you see the order that they give here? When we're talking about benefiting from the mercy of God, there is a process, right? You don't just wake up one day and benefit from the mercy of God. You aren't born into the mercy of God, so to speak. It has nothing to do with who your parents were. We as evangelicals believe in a personal conversion experience. We emphasize that. We tell people, you, no, not your mom, you have to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You have to put your faith in Christ. So we push this and emphasize personal conversion. And as they say, there is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ. But you see the order that they put them in. It puts regeneration, then justification, then sanctification, and then glorification. And they go on to highlight and unpack a little bit of these. But I want to argue back to that idea when we're talking about faith and repentance. I do believe that repentance comes before faith. And let me unpack this argument. So the basic idea, uh, and this comes from the Baptist faith and message here. It says repentance, uh, metaneoa. It says means to have a change of mind, affections, convictions, commitments, right? So meta means change, nous means mind. This is grounded in rejecting false beliefs, and holding to true beliefs, including a clear realization of who Christ is, our personal sinfulness, fear of God, and sorrow for committing sins against him. This is a concept that we were once hostile towards God. We were once enemies of God. So when I say that repentance precedes faith, I'm going to put a R here, repentance, and then we have faith. What we are arguing here so far is that you literally have to have a change of mind. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it means that you can't trust in Jesus if you don't believe in him in certain ways. We just all argued that you have to have certain beliefs about him, right? When I talk about faith in him, I have to have knowledge, assent, and trust. Is everyone okay so far with that, knowledge, assent, and trust? Well, part of the repentance in this, strictly speaking, and I am not talking about... Um, turning from your sins as in an action. Because I think that there's a second order of repentance that I'll argue here in just a second. There's a second order of repentance which is ongoing. Those two are divided, but if you stick with this strict here that you have a change of mind, you have a change of mind about who Jesus is. Does that, does that make sense? Does any, anyone want to tease this out? Any, anyone want to ask any questions or say, hey, but what about this? Okay, so let me ask a question. Can you have faith without having a change of mind? 
Okay, why do you say that? Not to pick on you, but I would like to hear it. Okay, okay. And this is hard for us, though, because so many times what we do is we only talk about repentance in light of what I would call the second order, which is turning from your sin. And if you, if you do that, what do you, if you put that type of repentance above faith, what are you, what are you actually preaching? Work salvation. You no longer are able to say, come as you are. So we've got to be very clear. And I'm not... I'm not I'm telling you this, I'm not necessarily thinking that that's a good idea for you to go tell other people this. Okay, and I'm, I'm saying that not that this is wrong, because I think this is right, but there are certain things that are better just for study and can be more complicated and less useful in practical application. But have it in your mind that when the scripture says repentance, it's talking about having a change of mind. And, and, and that change of mind isn't just an intellectual, as I'm arguing here, that there's change of mind is the affections, convictions, and commitments. Okay, so there is this change of mind about who Jesus is, and you do have a certain feeling towards sin and all of these different things. Now, we'll talk about the second order here in just a second, but what has to happen, I believe, and I agree with the Baptist faith and message on this, um, is that there is this idea of regeneration, but before we get there, um, man, it's kind of small on these screens. Sorry about that. This is actually, I wish you could see this, but I'll read it to you. <laughs> um, so this is my, one of my theology professors. We are on a discussion board, and we have, to, we have to argue what is the order of salvation, strictly speaking, and we're not going all the way back to uh, you know, the covenant of redemption, election, and all of that. We're not going that far back. We're just saying in this box, um, when you tell someone how to believe in Jesus, what, what are some of the things that have to happen? What's the order? And I actually said, you know what? I think, I think that what you have is you have faith and repentance inseparable um, in, in that their, their order is kind of instantaneous. They go together that I have my change of mind, I'm having faith, all of these good things, because they go together, it's very hard to separate them. And I said, and I incorrectly said, but at a minimal, I would struggle with saying repentance would come before faith. And my professor rebuked me, and I hear, and I hear it, and here I am teaching what he would tell me. So let me, work you through, let me walk you through this, I have to get close because it's so small. He says, Rob, also, I would place repentance at the beginning of faith. And when he said that, I said, what? But then he explained it. He says, given the elements of saving faith is knowledge, assent, and trust, repentance is required to get to knowledge and assent. He says, the common New Testament word uh, for repent is metaneo. It says, which means in essence to change one's mind from meta, which we talked about, and nuos, change. Here one must realize the intellectual errors one held, reject them as false, and accept new ideas as true. When this is done with the truth of the gospel, the first two elements of knowledge and assent are satisfied, but the person has not yet gone the next step of trusting. He says, also, to arrive at where one can confess Christ, one must change his or her mind. The common New Testament word for confession is homologio, which at its root means to be in agreement with something from homo, which is same, and logos, which is idea. So he says, so, to get to the first two elements of saving faith, one must repent and confess to have a knowledge and assent. The final element is the act of the will, to trust and submit to what one has understood and acknowledged as true with respect to the gospel. 
Um, and then he goes on, he says, and a person who has genuinely repented will feel sorrow and remorse because they changed their minds to acknowledge their sins and, with, and, and have an understanding of what is right. So the basic idea that I'm, I want you to struggle through is that we have to have this. When we enjoy the mercy of God, first off, there has to be something that we recognize. We have to recognize Jesus for who he is, and we have to think differently about him. But before we can get there, I would argue um, that there's, there's some scripture here to unpack a little bit. I want it to be very clear that these aren't all talking about the exact same thing, but they're relevant. So the first scripture is Jeremiah 36, 3. He says, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disasters I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Okay, so let, let's, let's work through this a little bit. Going along with what I've outlined here with first and second order repentance, what would you say that he's talking about there? What's more in line? Is it first order or second order? I would be more inclined to argue that that's second order. This is as if a, per, a people who already know the Lord, but they're not acting correctly. And he's saying repent, and, and, and it doesn't use the word repent here, and some translations do it differently, but turn is, is, is often, often translated as a synonym. And it's actually interesting because in the Hebrew, uh, the word repent that is used is uh, not the same as the Greek, uh, metaneo, it's actually sub, but we're not getting into that stuff. But I, want, I do want to make that, I'm not arguing that this is the Greek word metaneo, that's not what's happening here. But the concept is the same, it's to turn from, all right? But what he's saying is to turn from your evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. And it's an interesting thing that we have to struggle through here. Very, in, yes, yep. Uh-huh, yep. Yeah, um, well, it kind of goes with both, actually, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, there is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that when you get to this one, you can't do this without conviction. And so we'll, we'll, kinda, we'll talk through that here in just a second. But I would argue um, that the first one is more in line with second-order repentance, um, to struggle through what that means to live in continual repentance. And I would argue that the Christian life is marked by continual repentance. So we would do ourselves an injustice to say it only happens here and never happens again. Because what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to continue to recognize the ways in which we are disobedient to the Lord and turn from them, to change our mind about them, to, to actually turn away from evil and towards God, which is a continual act of, of the Christian. Now, to put, put it in, 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 in some practical application here, what if someone, uh, you know, not to be too, too, too raw here, but if you found out about someone who was cheating on their spouse, and you went to them and you said, hey, you need to stop doing that. And they said, well, I, ha I have, I've repented. I changed my mind about it. And then they keep doing it. Where, where their spouse would rightfully say they're unrepentant. And their pastor would be right in saying, you need to repent. And you're not repenting. You can't just say that you've changed your mind about it and continue on in this sin. You would literally be unrepentant. So it has to go further than just an intellectual assent and so these two are, are they're, they're very hard to separate, but what we can never say, clearly, we have to get this, is that this type of repentance isn't this repentance. This repentance, I argue, follows necessarily from true conversion, 
We can disagree on that, but I argue that this is necessary. But this one right here is not saying, get your life cleaned up before you come to Jesus. That is not what this is saying. And if you do make it say that, welcome to works soteriology. So be very careful with that. But let's look at this next one. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. First order or second order? I think it's first order. Then the next one. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. What do you guys think? It's hard, isn't it? And I'm not saying I've got this figured out. I'm not sitting here, here's the perfect exact right answer, but I want to struggle through this because I do believe that there is a difference. All right. Then this next one really hits me hard. Uh, Acts 26, 17 through 18. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. First or second? I think it's first. Now, we can disagree on that. That's where I am today when I read that. Where I read that. But do you see it doesn't, it doesn't say repent, but the idea is there. We would clearly get the idea to turn from and he's not saying, don't get this, he's not saying that you've got to clean up your whole life and turn from all darkness as in never sin again, but it is this idea that you have your eyes opened so that you turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Sanctified by what? Faith in me. This is Jesus, right? So we have to wrestle through this, but I want us to have this in our hearts and our minds that we have to look through these when, we, when we're calling someone to come to faith, when we're coming to enjoy uh, the mercy of God, we've got to be clear in our, what our message is. The message is you are saved by faith alone. You are not saved by works. None of us are saved by works. And so even, even while there is an element here that we have to turn, do not ever put the burden on someone that unless they stop sinning, unless they turn from all of their sins, they are not truly saved. That is work salvation, and you're in big trouble. But let it sting us that when we have benefited from true conversion, that we will live in a, in a continual repentance attitude, that as God reveals to us the ways in which we are wicked, the ways in which we are disobedient, so the appropriate response is to turn, to confess our sins, and, and to be cleansed from that. But let's talk a little bit further about this idea of regeneration. Regeneration is an interesting word, but I believe it very much points to the mercy of God. I like this idea that we get from the Baptist faith and message once again. This is regeneration or the new birth is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they go on. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. And this is from Article 4a of the Baptist Faith and Message. But do you see the order that they give there? It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through what? What's the mode? Conviction of sin. To what? To which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they argue repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. And I believe that they say that, and they can say that on this first order. Now, I have a hard time, and I want to wrestle through it more, 
but I, I believe that there's still some tension here, but I haven't resolved it, and I'm not going to stand up here and say that I have, and here's the answer to it. There's some tension there. D- deal with it. <laughs> deal with it. I don't know if we ever will figure that one out. But I do believe this, and I agree with the Baptist faith and message, so more and more every day, I guess I'm getting better and better at being a Baptist, or I'm more and more comfortable being a Baptist. I don't even know what I'm saying right now. I'm rambling. But when I read this, I look at this, and I can say, I agree with that. That's what I'm really trying to say. Um, uh, Because when I came to the Baptists, all I had was these presuppositions that they're kind of weird, and they just like hate drinking and dancing. (laughs) And so I'm like, I don't really know if I agree with these guys. I don't know. Seems what I've seen so far seems good, but the more I dig in, the more I'm like, man, this is good. This is good. So this is another example to me to look at it and say, you know what? Even though the Baptist faith and message isn't as exhaustive as I would like it to be, whatever that means, it still is accurate enough that I think we can hold to some orthodox truths here. Yet, it leaves enough there for us to struggle and have some tension to work through, okay? But I believe regeneration is, is something that we've got to consider, and it is the new birth. A couple of, um, a couple of scriptures to, to work through, uh, if you want to, is actually right here. We just went through it. First um, Peter 1, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has what? Caused us to be born again to a living hope. And you remember Jesus and Nicodemus, and I have that conversation in John 3. Um, he's saying, what do, I, what do I have to do, right? And Jesus said, you've got to be born again. It's not enough to be born of the water alone, but you've got to be born of the Spirit. And he goes on, he talks about how the Spirit works in a mysterious way like the wind. But, but just as we have no power in our own uh, genesis, if you will, uh, you know, quick survey, how many of you here were involved in your own conception? None of us had a vote in that, did we? We went from non-existence to existence, and we woke up one day to self-consciousness, and we're like, all right, this is what I've been handed. Okay, let's work with this. And I would argue that regeneration, which is meaning to be born again, to be brought from spiritual death to life is analogous that it is a work of God, that it is a work of the Holy Spirit. So when we evangelize, when we preach the gospel, what we want is we want to see people respond in faith. Um, let me ask a rhetorical question, and I hope you answer no. Can you force someone to get saved? No. But what if, what if you knew all of the silver bullet apologetic arguments? Answer is no. What if you really, really love them? Answer is no. What if they're really, really smart and they understand everything you said? No. The point is, is that we don't despair. We don't say, oh, it's all lost. Why even try? The point is to give God the glory in every conversion, in every salvation. We say, if you didn't bring them from spiritual death to life, they would still be dead. Because I couldn't cause that spark in them. I could not do that. And so we believe that, that this is a work of the Holy Spirit that happens, that gets inside of the believer. There, 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 there is an instance in which um, I think that also regeneration precedes faith here. I'm putting that out there. I'm aligning with the Baptist on this one. And some people aren't comfortable with that, and that's okay. We can talk about that. But I believe before we can have true repentance, we have to have regeneration. Before we can have regeneration, what comes is conviction. 
Now let me ask another practical evangelism 101 question. Whose job is it to do the convicting? Oh, really? But it's so much fun making people feel horrible about their sins. I always enjoyed that part. You know, in-your-face ministries. It's, it's very effective. But we have to recognize that, don't we? We have to recognize that conviction has to happen. Um, and and if, you, if you really dig into this, and you'll, you'll get the same message just about everyone you read um, on, on a number of different, you know, on the spectrum here uh, of the, theologians. Um, they may be divided on eschatology. They may be divided a little bit on soteriology. They may be divided in some of these other things. But pretty much everyone is going to agree that no one gets saved without conviction. Why is conviction important? Okay, that's part of it. But I'll argue conviction and drawing is a little different. You got to know you're a sinner. Why? Why? Why do I need a savior? I'm good, right? And so that's the part that we wish we could start in people, right? And some, you know, I'm not going to talk bad about the way of the master, but they kind of take a little bit of that approach. And maybe that's effective in some places. But ultimately, we have to all agree that conviction starts with the Holy Spirit. He gets inside and messes us up. But here's another truth that we have to hold to as we're trying to get people to benefit from the mercy of God, and we wish we could force them to it, wish we could argue them into it, wish we could love them into it, wish we could convict them into it. Not everyone who's convicted is regenerated. It is possible to feel some conviction, but then it dies out, and it doesn't go on to saving faith. So we have to just know that. What do you do with it? I don't know. But it is possible for people to feel some stirring, some conviction, some remorse. Pharaoh, Pharaoh felt some of that. But unless the Holy Spirit brings you from death to life, it's not going to mean anything. It can, it can end up in moralism, right? Someone can say, well, I feel a little bad when I do that. So you know what the answer is? Is I'm going to do my best to obey the law, right? Uh, and you see some of that. But here's the point. We've got to look at this. And, 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 and I'm going to move from this topic, but I believe this order is important for us to consider. Maybe you don't agree with me, and that's okay. I've tried to align with the Baptist faith and message on this and not preach just my theology. This is what we believe as Baptists. Um, but this is an important thing to wrestle through, and I think when we're trying to help people appreciate the mercy of God, these are some major steps in it. Bigger picture, there is a gospel message that is outside of us, that does get inside of us, but it's outside of us in that God created the world, man fell, man is in need of a savior, God wants to redeem man, God makes a way through Israel, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, takes on flesh, lives a perfect life, dies in our place, and is rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended and is reigning, and he's returning. And there's a day in which redemption will have a more holistic um, execution. Those are all gospel things. All good things that we can think through. But here is when we say narrow in on the personal conversion experience. And when we're talking about this, as, as 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God... And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power to be guarding through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And this is such a rich 
passage of Scripture to unpack and to really um, mine through, in which we don't have the time this evening. But I want to move on. I want to talk about Jesus Christ uh, as the eternal God-man. But before we do, I want to make a quick pass here. I said baptism's important, but it's not salvific. Baptism does not save you. If you get baptized without the Holy Spirit, you just got wet. And you can get wet a lot of times, can't you? But it is not salvific. But New Testament model is that we are uh, being united with the body of Christ and identifying with the work of Christ. Christ commanded us to be baptized, right? In the, in the, in the Great Commission, what does he say? Go, therefore, make disciples, what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to what? Obey or observe all that I have commanded you. But that, that's part of what we have to look at. Is the New Testament model we see is that the, the baptism of the believer is something that it, we should do, and it's, it's the first act of public obedience. Uh, here's a couple of scriptures we don't have time to really open up. That second one is really interesting. First uh, Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay, let's leave. There's more to it, right? Context determines meaning always. Now, some people do believe baptism saves you. We don't believe that, and I don't think Scripture teaches that. But I would push on us that part of the normative conversion experience that you see in the New Testament is baptism immediately follows conversion. Uh, saving faith, right? Have faith in Christ, trust in Him, get baptized. We're really, we really, I'm, I'm just saying this, we need to take it a little more seriously. I'm not preaching, I'm going to stop. I preached last week, I'm not going to preach too much this week. But we have to take it seriously. It's not just getting wet. It's not just having a good time and people celebrating and taking pictures. There's something special there. But what, what is it? It's not salvific. But what is it? It's important. It's a sacrament of the church. And it's really reserved for believers. And we, we identify with Christ. All right. Now I want to close um, with these last two ideas. Uh, tonight that I really want to hone in on this concept of the mercy of God. You know, lots of other religions have a view of God, and none of them have a view of God as merciful. Christianity posits this God who says, I will have mercy on you even when you're an enemy. It's not, it's not I'll have mercy on you because you made it most of the way. I have mercy on you while you hate me while you're dead in your sin. And so Jesus is the God-man full of mercy. Um, I want to read to you an excerpt from Jonathan Edwards, uh, his sermon that, is, that has been so touching to me personally. You guys probably get tired of hearing me talk about Jonathan Edwards. Um, but I love this sermon, and I, I've, I've had several Sunday nights where I go home and I just think, man, what am I doing? What, how can I preach the gospel when I know how messed up I am? And I open up Jonathan's sermons, and I read through them. And this one is one that really has helped me on some of those nights where I'm just, I'm just not feeling good. I'm not feeling the, the mercy of God, if you will. And, and, and re read these with me. Listen to this. He says, If you ever truly come to Christ, you must come to him to make you better. You must come as a patient comes to his physician, with his diseases or wounds to be cured. Spread all your wickedness before him. And do not plead your goodness, but plead your badness and your necessity on that account. And say, as the psalmist in the text, not pardon my iniquity, for it is not as great as it was, but pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Do you realize that we can come to God not hiding our sins, but 
fully spreading them before him? Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of scary, isn't it? Because what do we want to do? We want to present the best side of us. Anyone we meet in, in this world, we want to present the best side of us to, right? Put your best foot forward. Oh, I don't look quite right. Or, hey, you know, you caught me in a bad moment. I'm usually not that mean. Right? What are we doing? We're afraid to be vulnerable. We're afraid to be completely exposed, open, truthful with who we are. But do you know you're not hiding anything from God? And while that may be used to be a scary thing, actually in the Christian gospel, it's a beautiful thing. Because he's not waiting for more information to come in. He's not like, you know what? I've kind of got your name barely written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but we'll see how you do. We'll see whether or not we write that in pen. It's in very faint pencil right now, but we'll see, what, see, we'll see if it's going to stay. That's not how he looks at us. And I, I, and I had a friend not long ago counseling through some hard times. And, and I said to him, just as I've had to say to myself before, God wasn't surprised. When you did this, God was not surprised. And you know what? Those moments can be beautiful images of true gospel grace. When you look at God and you say, not only have I not hidden anything, I don't want to hide anything from you because I need you to heal me. You come to him as the great physician, and I love it on, uh, what Edwards is saying. He says, not pardon my iniquity for it is not as great as it was as if I've gotten it cleaned up a little bit here Lord it used to be worse here it is he's saying it's as bad as it ever has been fix it because you alone can and this is the idea he goes on he says all their hope of mercy must be from the consideration of what he is Jesus is what he hath done and what he hath suffered and there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved but that of Christ that he is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, that his blood cleanses from all sin, and that he is so worthy that all sinners who are in him may well be pardoned and accepted. That's beautiful, isn't it? I'm telling you, I'm sitting there on my couch thinking, what a messed up person I am. How could God use somebody like me? And then I'm reading words of Edwards, I'm like, that's right. That is right. Any sinner who comes to Jesus Christ will be fully accepted. Fully accepted. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says in his book, By Grace Alone. He says, perhaps you stand outside of all of this. You may even secretly fear the thought of admitting your need of a Savior, or belonging to Christ, or turning away from sin, or letting go of the old life and coming under his lordship. Yet for all you fear it, you know this is the truth. You have tried to ignore it and deny it, but you cannot any longer. There is a battle going on in your heart. Stretch out your hands in faith to Jesus Christ, and he will bring you in. He will keep you going and take you home. You want to know how to share the gospel? That's the stuff. We literally, we say to broken people, trust in Jesus, the great physician, who will heal you. Not of just your physical stuff but the guilt and shame you carry that kills you. Sharing the gospel literally is that. Saying, I know a God who will love you even though you are that messed up. And you're more messed up than you even know. This is Jonathan Edwards ends this sermon. He says, you need not be at all more fearful of coming because of your sins, 
let them ever be so black. If you had so much guilt lying on you, each of your souls, as all the wicked men in the world and all the damned souls in hell. Stop, think about that. If you had all the sins on you of all the damned men in hell, all that, if that were true, yet if you come to God for mercy, sensible of your own vileness and seeking pardon only through the free mercy of God in Christ, you would not need to be afraid. The greatness of your sins will be no impediment to your pardon. Therefore, if your souls be burdened and you are distressed for fear of hell, you need not bear that burden and distress any longer. If you are but willing, you may freely come and unload yourselves and cast all your burdens on Christ and rest in him. Do you believe that? I believe that. So this is the book recommendation for the week by Grace Alone by Sinclair Ferguson couple of highlights, and I'll give it back over to Chris to close this out. Week one, we talked about God is eternal. He's necessary. He's self-existent. He alone has those qualities. He alone has those qualities. Week two, we talked about the Trinity. God is one in being, three in person, the Trinity. This is beautiful mystery, but it's a truth we see all throughout Scripture, and it is one of those things that we hold to without negotiating. Week three, we talked about God as holy. He is perfect and he is just. And we challenged uh, each other to pursue holiness. Not that we won't be saved unless we're perfect. That's not the, that's not the point. The point is that we want to be like God in that we are holy, set apart. And the role of the church is to be set apart, calling those who would be set apart for God's glory. And then this week, we focused in on God's mercy that God is merciful and the gospel stands ready to save even the greatest of sinners. And here's a little plug for my little website, caseevangelism.com. I write on this stuff, post this stuff all the time. I just posted a paper on probability and intelligent design. If you want to go check that out, I know that sounds like really interesting to you. But, but also, here's, I post videos and stuff. Here in the next couple of days, we'll record a video highlighting this whole series just like we did last year. Um, and and that I'll, I'll throw that up there as well. So anyways, thank you for hanging out with us for this very, very good four-week study. You know, as I was sitting there listening tonight and just processing this, that that God doesn't need us, but he allows us um, to be a part of, of his salvation story as believers. He, he calls us to be ambassadors for Christ. It is as though God were making his appeal through us. And, and I love that, that God, it's like when I was a little kid and my dad, my dad became a, he went back to school and became a teacher and a coach. And uh, he was a, he would take me every once in a while to school with him. And it was like, bring your kid to work day, you know? And, I, and it was cool because my, he, was the co- he was one of the coaches. And so I could get the basketballs and just pl- like go shoot in the gym at Northeast High School. And, and, uh, and they were like, oh, you're Coach Wall's son. And, and I was like, yeah, I'm pretty important around here. That's right. And, and, you know, when we share the gospel with people, that's like a continual calling about bring your kid to work day. Because God's at work, but we get to be a part of it. We get to be with him. This is why I pray that, that, that you are prepared to share the gospel. I want, you to, I want you to know the magnificence of his mercy. 
because we're going to get to share the gospel with people. We're called to do that. I, I pray that, that, that you're persuasive. Well, I want to be persuasive with sharing the gospel. I want to be clear with the tenets of the gospel. I want to be clear about the gospel. I want to know what the gospel messages are. And then I'm going to trust God with the results every time. And I love it that we get to be a part of this. Now, now I want to ask a question. How many of you have ever heard of the Baptist faith and message? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever read it? Okay. Okay. I want to give you an assignment. You can Google this, the Baptist faith and message. And, uh, and you ought to Google it. You ought to, you ought to read it. It's one of those things that will help you, uh, like Rob said, it, it, you'll have to think about every line, think about these things. But, but it's our doctrinal statement. As a, as a, as a, I love it that we're Baptist. I love being a Baptist. I love that, that we've taken some stands on our doctrine, our theology. And, it, and, and I'm concerned that it's popular in many churches not to. You know, oh, we don't want to get into doctrine. Hey, man, that's, that, that ought to concern you. I want to challenge you not to go plug into a church that's going, yeah, we don't get into that doctrine stuff. That, that's a, that ought to be a smoking red flag, okay? Um, doctrine matters. What we believe matters. Truth matters. So let's, let's make sure that I want to challenge you to read it. And, uh, and it'll be one that you'll have to think about. And, and, and you know, you, like Rob reads it and goes, ah, man, it doesn't go far enough. You may go, that's plenty uh, right there. And uh, that's okay. That's all right. But, um, but, but I want to challenge you to read it because it's a, it's a, you know, some, um, it's important. And I'm grateful as Southern Baptists that, that those that have gone before us have said, let's stay close to the, the truths of God's word. And let's stay true to those. Um, and we should. Thank you for hanging in there and wrestling. And, and uh, now y'all need to go have some ice cream or something and just debrief, just kind of go watch, I don't know, Barney or I don't know, whatever you watch to unplug or something. But, uh, uh, but hey, thanks. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Lord, thanks for this day. Thanks for the wrestling. And I pray that, um, Lord, you would, you would continue to grow us, that we would not be satisfied with where we are today in our understanding and our search of you, that, that you have given us faith. And, Lord, we are a people that are seeking understanding. We want to seek to know you more today than we ever have. We want to seek to love you more today than we ever have, Lord. We want to follow you. I love that, whoever that smart guy that said, I want to love you more dearly, follow you more nearly. And there's one other thing, Lord, but I can't remember it. But thank you, Lord, for, for this call to, to seek your face. And may we know you. May we walk with you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, thank you for your mercy. That, that we got to come to you and not try to give you our highlight reel or our, um, our best, but we got to come and lay out our worst at your feet and say, Lord, this is who we are and what we've done and, 
And you said, I, I forgive you. And I'll, I love you. And you took our sin from us and upon yourself. And oh, Lord, thank you that we can come as we are. In Jesus' name, amen.